Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Elizabeth McNulty, and today I'm joined by Amy Gunn, Liz Linneby, Mary Simon, and Megan Crow. We're going to be talking about decision-making during this week's episode. Make good choices or make good decisions is something I've been told probably my whole life. Growing up, there was a strong emphasis on how the decisions I was making would impact my life, and I think that that's mostly true. One decision can change the course of your life, as some people might have learned, myself included. So I've had this poem hanging in my room for the better part of my life, and now it hangs in my office. It's by Sammy Sunchild, and it's titled Choosing. So I'd like to start off this discussion by reading it. In my life, I am the chooser choosing. Do I say, look what life is doing to me, or do I say, look what I am doing to life? There is power in choosing. There is special power in knowing I am the chooser at every moment. In every situation, even when I do not take action, even when I do not make a decision, I am choosing to not decide. I am choosing to not take action. At every moment, I choose who I keep company with or not to keep company. I choose what I learn or not to learn anything. I choose how I spend my time including choosing to not choose. In life, I choose my mentors, or not to have a mentor, not to admire and emulate anybody, not to ask for help. When I go out the door, I turn right or left, or go straight ahead. The path I take can influence my whole life. I can even choose not to go out at all. Most importantly, I choose which ideas, actions, foods, drinks, substances I say no to, and which I say yes to. I teach myself a thousand times a day to make brilliant decisions or not. So I've read that poem to myself probably once a week for as long as I can remember. It's always a nice reminder of how impactful our choices can be and how it's a privilege to even be in the position to have choices and decision-making power. It's empowering to get to make decisions for yourself. And even when I was much younger, I was given a lot of space to make decisions for myself. More recently, I've come to really appreciate that because it comes in handy as I've gotten older and had to make decisions on my own. I didn't feel overwhelmed by all of the freedom and responsibility that came with making those decisions because I was used to it. But in professional life, especially as a lawyer, some days feel like all we do is make decisions. And that can be very overwhelming, especially in the beginning. For me, it certainly has been one of the more challenging aspects of our job. So I'm curious, I thought it'd be interesting to hear how you guys make decisions and some of the things that you look at when making big or small decisions. So right now I am choosing to process that poem and I'm, I thought it was pretty profound, especially the, the line in particular, I wrote it down, choosing to not choose. That line particularly stuck with me just thinking about it because I have gotten into the habit, I've made the choice of Sundays as my rest day where I don't make, I try not to make choices. I just want to sit on my couch. I want to have something pre-planned for myself. I want to have a TV show already queued up so that I don't have to make a choice about what I'm going to pick on Netflix or am I going to go to Hulu or whatever? Or what book am I going to choose to read? I, I want a day free of choices to truly allow myself to rest and give my brain a rest, which is what I need before I go into a week of constantly having to make decisions, especially 
in our particular line of work, we're making really big decisions. We're making choices in the cases that could have huge impacts on our clients' lives. And that's a really heavy burden. That is a really big responsibility. And it's something that I think we just get so into the the motion of just making choices every day that sometimes we don't fully recognize and appreciate how important the work that we're doing, but also the potential impacts that come from that. Elizabeth, I appreciated that poem so much. And I, I'll i say the, the thing that I always come back to when I make decisions is just what's the next right thing? What is the next right thing to do? And I ask myself that many times every single day, multiple times during a single hour. What is the next right thing to do? And that serves me both in my personal and professional life, whether I'm at work or I'm at home. And second is owning my own peace, my own peace of mind that always guides me in decision making. I cannot escape the fact that my perspective is coming from a a mom of a seven-month-old and my first baby. And I'm so sick sometimes of making decisions. Sometimes I'll look at my husband and say, does she need a bottle? And if he looks at me and says, I don't know, I'm like, just make the decision for me. So it's one less thing I have to think about. You know, the amount of decisions you have to make, not only for yourself, but I'm sitting here thinking about making decisions for another human is wild to me. But I always come back to what is the next right thing? And it guides me, especially with clients, just what is the next right thing for this person? What is the next best thing they need? And how can I work to get that? The other biggest piece of advice I can offer, and I learned this early on in my practice from Amy, is you have to trust yourself. You have to know that you have come all this way to the point you are. You've done all of the things to get you to the position that you're in now to make the exact decision that you're faced with. And you got to trust that every single thing you've learned and everything you know up until this exact decision that you're thinking about making, whether it's big or small, you already know it. So you got to be able to trust your own self and your own experience. That's been huge for me and has served as a guidepost for me in many aspects of my life. The only other thing that came to mind, Elizabeth, when you were talking about choosing mentors is minimize the amount of people that you go to advice for when you're making a decision and stick with those people. When you have a decision to make and you're on the fence and you want to make that one phone call, keep it to one phone call. Talk to one person that you trust and move forward. But I'm curious to hear what others' thoughts are on this because it is such a contemplative thing to think about. Amy, what do you think about this? Well, first, thank you for that shout out. I very much appreciate that. I made a list before we started of random thoughts about how to make decisions. And guess what was number one on my list, Mary Simon? Trust yourself. Yes. It's the first thing on my list with a star. And I do believe very strongly. I know it takes time as we grow and get more experience. It's easier to trust yourself the longer you do it successfully. But even as a young lawyer, even as a young professional, even as a young mom, even as a young whatever, I think you know your abilities, your training, what you've gone through up to this point to get where you are, to be in a position of trust with other people. And you didn't just fall into that. You earned that position. 
So just trust that you're there for a reason. A few other things that I listed just on the general thought of how do I make decisions? And it's such a broad topic because we make decisions and answer questions many, many times a day. Personally, professionally, you name it, we're making decisions. And other things, and I think this list goes more to the larger ones where there are options and maybe there are multiple right answers. Maybe there are wrong answers. So number one, trust yourself. Number two, consult trusted sources. If there are people that you know and trust that can help you make this decision or allow you to be more comfortable in the decision that you've made, just need a little cover for it or a little validation, then do that. If you're really trying to make a big decision, this is might sound silly, but make a pro-con list. I mean, I still do that from time to time. Take a legal pad, scratch a line down the middle, write pro on the left and con on the right or whatever you're more comfortable with and write things down. I think sometimes it really matters to just put pen to paper. There's not just one answer. There is not just one good answer. There are lots of good answers. So let's sit down and figure out which one for you is better than others. And that can apply to many different things, making decisions for clients, for cases, for your life, whatever it is. I think it starts with what's the goal? What is the goal of this decision? Where do you see it leading? And Mary, I love the part where you say, what's the right thing right now? Because that really is what you have to, don't put it on yourself that you have to make this decision that's going to be a 20-year decision. I mean, truthfully, maybe it is going to be, but that's just too much. What is the right thing right now? And then don't be paralyzed by indecision. There are so many things that I find myself just churning. Don't be afraid to outsource decisions that are not part of your particular profession or really, you know, personally you don't have to make all the decisions all the time. The other thing I wanted to mention is the book Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman. And this book's been around for about 10 years. It's data. It's science about how people think. It's really interesting. And it talks about there are two different systems, system one and system two, two different ways that our brain forms thoughts. And obviously that applies to how we make decisions. System one is fast and emotional and automatic. It answers questions such as that we answer instantly, like two plus two equals what? Complete the sentence day and, you know, and it's just things that we do really quickly. System two is really what we need to invoke in our professional life, more so than almost the knee-jerk system one stuff. And that is slow, effortful, thoughtful, calculating, logical things that we have to really, as I said, invoke. And what that tells me is, you know, we trust ourselves, but that doesn't mean that we base our decisions on knee-jerk reactions. So just because you trust yourself doesn't mean that the answer is the first thing you think of. Trusting yourself means that that's part of the, the equation. What does your gut tell you? But it doesn't end there. It means I'm going to be thoughtful and reach out to other sources or consult research or talk to someone or spend more time than two seconds on it. I think that system two thinkers, it's hard. And I've thought about this more and more after kind of getting into the book is how 
hard it is to be a system two thinker, how much time it takes, but how important it is. But at the end of the day, after we've made a whole bunch of decisions, what we shouldn't be doing is second guessing ourselves. I think that erodes our confidence and it really prevents us from being good, solid decision makers. One of the things that I first thought about when we decided to discuss this topic was what are some of the most challenging decisions that we have to make? And I think what's the most challenging is when you have to do the, Amy, what you described as type two thinking, but really quickly, such as when you're taking a deposition and you have to decide whether or not to object or whether or not you have to pivot. Those are often decisions that we have to make in real time, but they almost require a more drawn out thought process weighing of options, such as the type two thinking. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges of our profession is having to make some really hard decisions in a really short amount of time. I think that's a really good example, Megan, of, you know, having to make on the fly decisions and especially in a deposition. I mean, this happened to me just last week where I made an objection to a deposition because my gut told me it was wrong. And then I immediately went into the group chat and asked, hey, did I do the right thing here? Should I second guess myself? No, because immediately everyone in the group chat was like, yeah, that doesn't sound right. You made the correct decision by objecting. But it's just a great example that even though I'm six years out, there are things, there are situations I have not run into yet. And so I have to make a really quick decision immediate and hope that I've made the right choice. But, you know, just recently, a couple months ago, I was in a situation where I was talking to an older lawyer and the scenario had come up where a particular decision that this lawyer had made kind of came back to bite him in the butt a little bit. You know, he sat there and he kind of shrugged his shoulder and goes, hmm, well, I guess that wasn't the right choice. <laughs> and so even though this attorney who I respect greatly and is a phenomenal lawyer and has been doing this longer than I've been alive, he made a decision that turned out maybe it wasn't the right decision for that particular case. But the way he just shrugged it off that is what I took out of that interaction of, okay, look, I'm not going to make the right choice every single time, but what I can do is try to make the best choice or at least my analysis of the best choice in that moment. And fingers crossed, it turns out okay. And if it doesn't, it's not worth beating myself up over. It really goes back to, I mean, not to, not to beat this to death, but trusting yourself. And it's something that I have learned so much in the past year. This week was my one year anniversary working at the Simon Law Firm. And in this year, I have really learned to trust myself. I think that I had so much self-doubt when I was first jumping into these situations where I had to make serious decisions and quick decisions. But we are smart people. We wouldn't be in this profession if we weren't. And I think sometimes we underestimate ourselves. So that's something I've learned. That, and similar to you, Liz, I just had a, a situation last week where I was taking a deposition and it wasn't going how I was expecting it to go, but in a good way. It was a defense expert deposition and I was ready to go in hard and impeach him and everything. But what he was testifying to was not really damaging for us. And it was actually pretty good for us. So I had to make kind of a real-time decision to pivot the way I was going to conduct my cross-examination. It takes time, but also, you know, I had to rely on a little bit of trusting myself, trusting my instincts that this was the right way to go. And afterwards, I, I talked it out with my partner on this case. And he was like, yeah, I think you did the right thing. So it's hard sometimes, I think, to trust yourself. And sometimes 
talking to people afterwards to, uh, I know we do this in our group text all the time, but like you said, talking to people afterwards, validating that you made the right decision can help. Yeah, I definitely agree. And trusting your instincts is probably, at least for me, one of the more challenging parts of being a less experienced lawyer. And I can only assume that it gets better with experience. I'm curious if anyone has any thoughts or experience with when you know it's okay to delegate decision making, at least professionally. I think personally, you know, it's easier to delegate. But when it comes to your professional life, how do you know it's okay to delegate to others to make decisions as far as cases go? Um, if you're working with another attorney on a case, you let them make the decisions just because it's something that I struggle with sometimes as the younger lawyer on a lot of my cases, how to know when it's okay for me to make decisions on my own, or if it's something that I kind of need to take up the flagpole and when you know when it's okay to make decisions, or if you have a conversation about these are decisions that you get to make and kind of delegate that to someone else. I think in these situations, it's really important to have that conversation early. So when you are getting assigned the case, sitting down with the person that is more senior than you and saying, okay, let's talk about boundaries. What exactly do you want me to do on this case? I've had this conversation with John Simon before where John says, hey, I'm going to hand you this case. If there's anything really big, come talk to me. Otherwise, if it's the day-to-day -day things, I expect you to do that on your own. And that's a clear boundary that we have set where I know that, okay, I can handle the day-to-day -day things. But when there's a big decision to be made, maybe like settlement amount or if there's a decision, I think that is sort of one of the final decisions. So it's, it's really towards the end of the case. Then I'm going to pull John in. But if it's something that is just a day-to-day -day thing, I'm going to be making those decisions. So that's how I look at it. And I think it's just important to have those conversations early and make it a very sort of bright line or as, as bright line as you can. Having a very clear, concise conversation and providing as much clarity as possible, I think is the best way to get around that. I would not ever recommend you go to an attorney you're working for for advice on a decision if you yourself have not already decided what you would do in any given situation. I work a lot directly with my dad and it's the same thing. It's one email that says, please handle. And I just know from that point on out, it's out of his mind. I know that that's now on me. I'm responsible for everything from that point forward and I can come to him for advice but the first thing that comes out of his mouth as a great mentor, in my opinion, is what do you think we should do? And I appreciate that because a lot of times what will happen is I'll say what I think and yeah, I agree. That sounds good. Or it'll be five more questions that say, well, if you do that, have you thought of and, you know, fill in the blank of something that an attorney with more experience will, uh, you know, think about. And those conversations get shorter and shorter because you learn more as you go. Use your decision-making skills to have a complete plan of action of what the next thing is to do before you're going to consult with an attorney, especially if you're working for them, because it also shows that you are thinking about those things. Just have the decision ahead of time before you go ask for assistance in a professional capacity. Well, and I think on top of that, also, if they don't agree with what your answer to the problem is, make sure you understand why they're going a different direction. So then in the future, you don't need to re-ask that because it's a full learning moment because I think that that can be an easy mistake to make to not understand why they're choosing to go in a different direction than you were. So I know that we've all talked about kind of going to our people 
people to get their thoughts on a professional decision that needs to be made. Has anyone ever come across a situation where you disagree with the input that they give you? And if so, do you go the direction that they're telling you to go or do you stick with what your instincts told you? Occasionally, when working with another lawyer, you maybe divvy up who writes certain motions, and different lawyers have different writing styles. So I think my experience with this has been, I would decide to structure a brief differently than someone else or, or something else of that nature where it's not really going to make or break your case. It's not really a dire right or wrong decision. It's just a difference of stylistic preference. And I think in those situations, it's okay to just kind of let loose your pride a little bit and be like, this other person, what they're doing or choosing isn't necessarily wrong. You know, decisions have consequences. Every decision you make has consequences. That might mean one decision, it has really great consequences for you. It might mean that if you go a different route, there's a really negative consequence. You have to be ready for the consequence. You know, think about it in terms of our cases. We could settle the case now and be guaranteed a certain outcome for our client, or we could try the case and lose. That's a consequence of that decision. And that's a high stakes decision that we've all been in that position before. And we've all consulted with other people about that. And sometimes we decide to go one way when someone else that we trust is recommending we go another way. I don't think it means you have to not be afraid of it or be nervous or feel one way or whatever. You just had to have thought about it before you're ready to disagree with the person you're going to or understand there could be a consequence for that. So I think the issue is, sounds to me, we're talking about a situation where you've decided not to take someone else's advice. You've gone to someone maybe with option one, option two, they say option two, and you're like, nah, option three, or back to option one, or whatever it is. And in those situations, which do happen pretty often, whether it's at home or at work, I think it's about, it depends on who's the one giving the advice. Maybe that's a bad answer. But is it somebody that you really super duper trust that's never pointed you wrong? Is it someone that you just happen to be having a conversation with and they are giving you unsolicited advice? You got to consider your source on that. But if you're truly struggling with the decision and you go to one of your trusted resources, one of your trusted people and say, look, I just really don't know what to do. And you talk it out and they say one thing and you ultimately do another. I think you're right, Mary, as far as what the consequences are. But in order not to create worse consequences, I think you have that conversation with that trusted person and you say, thank you so much for your advice. I think I'm going to do option A instead of option two, but this conversation has really allowed me to solidify that. So thank you. I right? Agree. You don't want to be like, nah, yeah, that was stupid. Thanks for nothing. I mean, it's really about the delivery of that because there's so much value in being able to talk something through with someone that you trust that at the end, it shouldn't go badly because you didn't take their advice. And if it truly is someone that you trust, they probably won't take it that way. They'll be like, all right, that's fine. And not to be a broken record, but you probably did come to that conversation leaning one way or the other, you know, and what I do sometimes <laughs> a little bit backwards, maybe, is I kind of know what the answer is, but I just want some cover for it. 
Like, I just want to be able to say, well, no, no, I talked to so-and-so and he or she agrees with me. You know, because sometimes it's hard to make decisions, particularly about turning down cases or making decisions that may be perceived by someone to be disappointing to them or letting someone else down or not following through or whatever it is. But as long as you are deliberate about those conversations and what you want out of them and thoughtful, I think it turns out fine. I definitely have sought out that almost confirmation, validation advice. When I made the decision to leave my last job and come here, it was kind of a decision I knew in my heart was the right decision, but I asked a lot of people about it before I committed to it. And I talked to one person who I really trust and they said, yes, this is the right decision. But I talked to someone else who said that I should stick it out and see how it goes and it, it could get better. And I ultimately went with my gut and kind of used as confirmation bias, but it was really knowing in my heart that this was the right decision. But it helps to get that confirmation from someone that you that you know and trust. Oh, absolutely. I've told the story before on, on the podcast of when I got my job offer here. And even though I knew I wanted it, I was still like, oh, I gotta ask around. And I texted my now husband, then boyfriend. And in all caps, he responded, yes, why are you asking me this question? Go take that job. This isn't up for discussion. <laughs> but, it's, but it is nice. It is nice just to have someone tell you that you're right. So I get it. Of course it, it is. Always. Yeah. <laughs> I think in my personal life, I have a bad habit of seeking out advice. If they disagree with me, I would just absolutely not follow it. So I think anytime you hear that what you're doing is right is very helpful, especially for you know the old ego. So I kind of want to transition a little bit to talking about decision fatigue, which is another kind of topic that goes in with how to make decisions and how often we're making decisions. And I did a little bit of research and sources suggest that the average person makes around 35,000 remotely conscious decisions each day. 35,000. I was actually like very surprised by that number that it was so high. I thought you were going to say like in their lifetime. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> how many of those decisions are repeatedly choosing to hit the snooze button. For me, quite a few times. But a decision is like, you know, getting out of bed each morning, taking a few steps out, you know. So, but still, 35,000 decisions a day is. A staggeringly high number. And according to the American Medical Association, decision fatigue is the idea that after making many decisions, your ability to make more and more decisions over the course of a day become worse. So the more decisions you have to make, the more fatigue you develop and the more difficult it can become. Obviously, this is more common for those of us who make stressful or complex decisions or decisions that affect others significantly. So obviously, as lawyers, I think we check all those boxes. So this is something that affects us in a very real way. And it can have some real side effects like making you feel tired, leading to brain fog or other symptoms of physical or mental fatigue. So it leads to procrastination, impulsivity, avoidance and indecision. I'm sure we can all recall some times where that's how we were approaching decision making. I know that I will definitely like put off making decisions when I just feel like I've made too many. And it can also lead to recklessness. So it's definitely something that's important to 
be aware of, especially in our professional life. And sometimes not to make a decision at that point is a decision in itself. So you need to be aware if this is affecting you. I'm curious if anyone has any experience with this or has any ways they try to combat it. So the first time I ever heard of decision fatigue was the summer I was taking the bar exam. And I was talking to actually my moot court partner. I think I ran into him at the library or something like that. And we were talking about how stressed out we were. And I was telling him, you know, I know I'm just a nightmare to be around right now. And every day I go home from studying and and doing these practice exams. And my then boyfriend, now husband, he asked me how my day was. He asked what I want to eat, what I want to do. And I can't answer anything. I don't want to talk to him. I don't even want to think about trying to have a conversation. And my moot court partner says, yeah, you've got decision fatigue. You're tired of making a decision. You just want to go home and and have someone make a decision for you because all you've been doing all day is picking things. That's the first time I've heard of decision fatigue. And it just sort of hit me of, oh my God, that makes so much more sense of why I cannot make any decisions once I'm home. And so the way that I try to avoid the decision fatigue really is I have an agenda. It has all of my assignments in it. It has everything I need to accomplish that week, everything is written here. And if I don't get it done that week and it's it's OK, it's not a time sensitive thing, it goes on to the to do list for next week. But that way, when I finish something, I can move on to something else. It's on my list. I have a decision made for me. I don't have to think about, well, what do I want to do now? Or if I get tired of something, I can go back to my list and if a decision is made for me because everything is already all written out about what I need to accomplish next. I've already made the decision of what I need to do. And so that is, that's one way I try to combat it. And then the other ways I try to combat it really are things that we have talked about in depth. And that's just going to someone I trust and getting a second opinion. Whether I follow that advice or not, whether you know that's good advice that I'm going to follow through on, or if I think eh, yeah, that's not so great, I think I'm going to stick with what I originally thought, but at least it's confirmation. I appreciate you talking about it with me. That's the other thing I do. So just sort of controlling my own schedule as much as possible and controlling my own assignments in my day-to-day and then talking to those folks that I trust. I think my answer is having a routine. And it's specifically my answer to the question of, how to combat decision fatigue is to have fewer decisions to make. Now, boring? Yes, many would say yes. It's very boring to know exactly what time to get up every morning, to know exactly what you're going to be doing the first, you know, hour and two and three of my day, having a very detailed schedule as far as big things that need to be done. Being on that routine and having some rote things to do is some self-care, man. It's some self-care. And as I was listening to you all, it just kind of struck me. Like, first of all, it started with, I'm still stuck on 35,000 decisions a day. I'm still having a hard time processing that. But then I really started thinking, yeah, I mean, every single thing that we do really is a decision. What do I eat? What time do I get up? Which podcast do I listen to? How fast do I drive? I mean, like, literally, it's happening all day long. Some of it is unconscious, thank goodness, or subconscious, perhaps, is a better (laughs) way to say it. But to eliminate as many decisions as possible by having a routine that works must be helpful to me. It must be. Now that I'm really thinking about it, that must be part of my coping mechanism. Same. 
I'm the same too. Routine is really big for me. Making lists is also big for me. Another thing I found to be pretty interesting when I was researching this is kind of the idea of like planning out outfits or having like a capsule wardrobe, very, you know, Steve Jobs-esque, like (laughs) taking the thoughts out of making those little decisions because they become exhausting. And I think another good one is saving those big decisions for in the morning, just because as we know, as the day wears on, we get really tired of making decisions. So I think with that, we're going to wrap up our discussion on decision making for today. Thank you all for joining us on another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. If you've made it this far, you have made it through all four seasons of Heels in the Courtroom. But don't worry, we are going to get right back at it and we will be releasing episode one of season five next Wednesday. So I hope you enjoyed today's discussion as much as we did. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you download your podcasts. And as always, feel free to drop us a line at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again and have a great day. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today. 